Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? I'm all right, thank you, John. I'm glad to hear it. I'm really glad to hear it yeah, because right. I don't think anyone else is. It's, it's been absolute carnage the last few days. And that's pretty much all we're going to talk about today because we seem to have hit that inflection point that many people have been waiting for for quite some time. And it's all the doing, apparently, of this uh, coronavirus or COVID-19, as it's uh, now been renamed. And that is pretty much the subject of your Alpha report this week in its entirety. That it is, yeah. You worried, Phil? I am. I am. In in one respect, and in other respects, I'm not, because I think that human beings are very good at adapting. But this is your uh, your your stockbroker friends' point. Yeah, it's one of the one of the, one of the best messages in terms of getting things into perspective. What does he say? He said it is remarkable what people will get used to. Yeah, which is I mean, in sort of layman's terms, means human beings are very good at adapting to what's thrown at them and getting on with it making the best of it i would agree with that but right now we you know we, we're not at the point where you know what you're adapting to and i guess that's the big concern uh, at the moment but i think we're also in, no one knows what's going to happen where people probably do agree is this this may not be a permanent change in the landscape it's something that hopefully will blow over but it's a question is what damage does it do in the meantime. I think by that you mean it's not going to be the end of the world, uh, as we, we've seen in many sort of apocalyptic films in the past. One would hope so. But it does potentially do... And, and, and there are reasons for optimism there. China has appears to have contained the virus, but it has spread elsewhere. And it's that spread that has caused the the, the, the market concern. That, that's, I mean, it's seen some very, very significant share price falls. We are. Uh, I mean, markets, you know, overall indices, I want to put that sort of, you know... Eight, nine, ten percent in uh, three or four days, but individually, companies have have seen some very, very severe hits, in particular sectors as well that you wouldn't be surprised to hear: travel and leisure, airlines, and and so on. Airline stocks, particularly, are getting hammered. Yeah, I mean, they had a, a sort of double dose of bad news because the, uh, the Heathrow expansion got canned this morning as well. But there you go; we, we don't actually know where most of the damage is coming from. It it seems to be the virus. I think there's two, there's two sides to this. There's the the fears about what the virus could do, and then there's the reaction to it. And it's the second bit. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to trivialise this. You know, people are people are dying from this. Most people are not. You know, if you look at the... If you believe the statistics, it's about just over 3% fatality rate. But we- if you apply that to a lot of people, then it's a, it's a big issue. It's a big number. Yeah. You and know, that's you, not, that's not, not to be trivialised. But... I think if we can try and just dislocate from that and look at you know what people are listening for and, and in terms of what it might mean for their for their money. Well, that's so that's our job. That's what we exactly. Here to talk I, mean, I don't want to so. don't want to be disrespectful or no. trivialise it. But it, what concerns me is that the the response of governments, various authorities, to trying to stop this virus from spreading so quarantining workers being sent home people not traveling to certain regions could actually do huge damage 
to economies and companies. So we've already seen that those uh, measures that have been put in place in China have already had an effect on a number of companies. The AGO in particular um, came out with some numbers. Uh, yeah. And, and the effect has been significant of, of the month or so's shutdown in China. Yeah, I mean, it should, should come as no surprise that if you tell people to stay at home and shops don't open, factories don't work, and companies don't sell stuff. And so it is not a surprise at all that companies are coming out and saying, well, we're not going to make as much money as, as we thought we were going to, going to do. But, um, it, but it is temporary. It's temporary. Or hopefully it's Well, it's temporary. hopefully temporary. And I think it's very, very difficult for companies to quantify what the impact of this will be because they're much in the dark as we are. No one's got, no one's got a crystal ball on that. But I think what's, what's being shown is, um, depending on which companies or which type of industry you're in, is the potential for you know, quite significant damage to be done in quite a short period of time. How much does that matter over the long term, though? If this is, you know, you take, working on the assumption this is a temporary event, then you would would argue not much. So the AGO losing 5% of its profits in a year, so what? Yeah, you put, you know, you put a multiple of one on that, won't you? You know, in terms of the hit, you know, is it a permanent fall in, in value? The answer is, well, you hope, Next year, things will be better and they'll sell more. And on that basis, you know, Diageo remains a quality company with most selling, selling things that people want. So, correct. Temporary hit, so what? The so what is, I think, the, the potential impact that this has on the mindsets of, of investors, because this is a different type of event. And what we've had, you know, for the last 10 years or so, certainly in the last few years, is you've seen investors who have being prepared to pay very high valuations for companies that they see as being very dependable. And like, be, like the AGO. Like the AGO, are able to grow. And really the only thing that, that sort of preoccupied investors' minds has been how low will interest rates go and they're relying on the Federal Reserve particularly to underwrite the stock market and underwrite stock prices. And that's a kind of sort of valuation underpinning so you have this, these high valuations, which are fine as long as profits stack up. Now, even if, even if the hits to profits from this virus are temporary, which fingers crossed they will be, I, I have a view that it has changed the focus of investors. And this is a bit of a wake-up call in that it, it focuses investors' attention onto profits, which is what drives share prices in the long run. It's not just about where interest rates are going. So I think that the the realisation that profits don't always go up and that you do get bumps in the road um, will will potentially see a readjustment of investor expectations because this is something that I've been writing about for a long time now, is that you know the high valuations that have been attached to certain groups of shares, um, they can be explained quite a bit by low interest rates elsewhere, but they still doesn't take you away from the fact that they still imply quite decent levels of profit cash flow growth going forward. Mm, so, so essentially this is the bond proxy argument. Yeah, quality companies can give you the income that you can no longer get from elsewhere. 
Absolutely. And that may come back and everything's happy again. But I think that if people start to realise that you get events like this, you get recessions and, and so on, then perhaps these this, this argument is not as powerful as it was. Well, it's only this type of event is a reminder that inequities you're taking on risk. So they are, they are bond proxies in the sense that they give you income, but they're not bond proxies in the sense that they come with a lot of risk that, 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 that bonds don't have. Yeah, I think risk is a very, in, very important word in the context of this debate because I think what people are reali- what people realise when they get a sell-off like this is that they begin to ask themselves how much risk they are happy to take or comfortable with taking in their portfolios. And some will have come to the conclusion that they're taking too much. And it may well may well get to the situation where any money that's taken off the table in terms of selling shares doesn't doesn't automatically go back into shares when when the clouds sort of lift. Yeah, th- th- I mean, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense. So I guess, you know, w- one thing we've perhaps seen is people piling into a bull market uh, because it's going up and always seems like it's going to go up. And and now that that's being questioned. Yeah, and everybody feels great. Up. Everybody feels great when shares are going up. You know, people look at the value of their portfolios and they see them going up and they feel great. I mean, I, you know, something we, we've, we've observed is people taking very concentrated positions as well. Um, you know, diversification seems to have become a sort of lost art or even a lost thought. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's concentration and there's super concentration. But I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, 15, 20 stocks, 25 stock type portfolios. I'm perhaps not a fan of two or three. Do you, do you I mean, would you... Do you diversify in other ways as well, other other asset class, non-correlated asset classes, gold? That's so. a very interesting and important question. Um, one that you know, it's, it, it fascinates investors, academics, and so on. And I, you know, asset allocation is it's a bit it's a bit of an academic subject, and I think it's become you know where you sort of spread your money around and not have your, all your eggs in one basket, for those of you who want a, a layman's explanation to asset allocation. Well, but, I mean, but, we write about it a lot, and James Norrington, who is essentially our academic, yeah. I mean, this is his thing. The great thing about asset allocation in the past is that you used to be able to get a return on assets other than shares. So if you didn't like shares, you could park your money in bonds, government bonds, corporate bonds, property... And you could theoretically dial down the risks that you were taking with your portfolio. The problem you've got now is with with bonds, even though the bond market is rallying because people are doing that, it's not, you know, these are not risk-free returns. Some people say they're return-free risks because, you know, if bond markets spike because of an event, then you can lose a lot of money. And things like, you know, other diversifiers like commodities, and gold, particularly. I mean, gold has come into context, into uh, into people's attention this week. You know, I, I would argue that owning gold is is more risky than owning shares. You know, we, so, we spoke about gold a lot yeah, this I'm, week. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at the volatility, the historical volatility, how much the gold price bounces around. Mm. Gold historically is more volatile than shares. But I mean, commodities apart from gold and precious metals look pretty awful at the moment. I mean, and and that would be the economic effect of 
of a significant slowdown, particularly in China. You have to be very, very, very pessimistic, in my opinion, to buy gold. Um, I mean, gold is often seen as a an inflation hedge. And, you know, at the moment, I'm thinking, okay, could you get situations where you get high inflation? Yes, if you get shortages. You know, if this, if this thing leads to shortages, yeah, you could get you could get inflation. But you could also get deflation if you get uh, you know you know if, if if the worst case scenario comes comes or you could get a mixture of both, a mix, deflation in some things, inflation in others. So I don't know. Uh, I I just think that gold and you know diversification. I'm not sure you need to really bother with getting too heavily involved in it. I think you've got if you just want to take risk off the table, you've got cash. Yeah, cash is always just, an option. Just, just why why you know, why take risk? You're taking risk with your money if you put your money in gold and you put your money in commodities. Probably less so if you buy bonds and particularly short dated bonds and even long dated bonds. I mean if interest rate interest rates are unlikely to to go up and I mean, you, you know, I mean, if you look at long dated bonds now i think i think uh, the the us the us 10 year treasury has gone to an all time low yield i think yeah which means an all time high price all time high price yeah um i mean you know you you said uh, you know people are taking on perhaps too much risk that would imply taking on too much equity risk uh because equities have been seen as the only game in town yeah but you also say in the alpha report which i which i think is a very important point if you can't cope with the idea of a falling share price then perhaps you you shouldn't be in shares. Well, either that or you've got too much. Or to, or having too much. But what do you do with the rest of it? What do you do with everything else? Uh, huh. A cash ISA. You see your money whittled away by inflation. And this is this is this this, you know, all goes back into the issues that investors have been grappling with for the last ten years. Which, which I guess all has its roots in the previous financial crisis and the, the government response yeah. or the, the central bank response, which was we, money into the system. You know, we have, you know, shares are the only game in town. Shares are a one-way bet because the Federal Reserve will underwrite the stock market. And the Federal Reserve, make no mistake, that is what it's tried to do. And it will, continue, it will probably try to do it again. But it, can't, well, it hasn't got a lot of headroom, but it will, try, it will try what it can. This is different. If we look at... You know the disruption to real economic activity, and not not what's going on in the money markets. This is about real day to day life economic activity, which is being disrupted here. So, so you talk about that in your alpha report. Perhaps explain a sort of a uh, kind of hypothetical example of you know a company having a cash crunch. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what preoccupies my mind more than anything else on this issue, and it's. It's it's about the flow of cash around the economy or around companies, but generally around around the economy anyway. And that you know, if you have a situation where a customer decides not to take a transaction or is prevented from doing so because they are not allowed to leave their house, that means you have a business that receives less cash. It then may have a uh, an obligation to pay its suppliers which it will struggle to do. And you then get potentially get a dominant, which means that his supplier doesn't have the cash. So you get this domino effect on cash flow, on on sort of the ability of companies. Everything, everything depends on the flow of cash around the economy, really. That's how an economy works. The, West, the simple way to see an economy is essentially money flowing around between 
goods and services, firms and businesses, governments, people, that kind of thing. And if that flow of cash is disrupted by something like this, then it sets off all kinds of problems and, and that you know it's like spinning plates you know you're effectively trying to keep plates spinning and that if one of those plate you know you get broken plates and you know take take for example you know let's look at the airline industry or the tourist the tourist industry now and they have been the hardest hit this yeah there's two issues going on here in the you look at it from a profit side in the you know the airline businesses; they need to have pretty full planes to make a profit, and to make a good profit, they have to be very full. Now, if those planes are not going to be full, and they're going to be half full or sixty percent full, they're not going to make a profit. And I, and I get this. Uh, this goes back to a question actually that I raised in my editorial: is that you know there is an argument that spending that doesn't happen now because of these lockdowns will happen tomorrow. But for an air, for an industry like airlines, that's simply not the case. No, or or a restaurant meal. Yeah, absolutely. You don't go out and have two meals the next day or two flights the next week. Not unless you're really hungry. No, <laughs> but but no, you're exactly right. I mean, the other thing is is that you know a lot of these businesses, the travel industry, you know, you buy an airline ticket, you pay up front, pay up front for it, so they get cash before before the flight. Um. And that cash is used to finance and fund their day-to-day activities, pay wages, pay the leases or the rents, aircraft slots, landing slots. And if if that source of cash is diminished, it, it can put these companies in, in difficulty. Do we think we will see companies going to the wall here if this if this does become an extended yes shutdown. yes i think unfortunately you know you will it's it's not just things like debt that cause one of the main reasons particularly smaller companies i think you know the real risk is in is in smaller companies that are involved in industry supply chains these companies cannot survive very long if one of their customers doesn't pay them. What can they do? I guess they have a bank that they can go to. Yeah, I mean, that was, that's obviously the first first port of call if you need cash. And obviously what happened in the last recession is lots of banks just slammed the door in their face. I mean, I, I'm conscious here that we're going down a pretty nasty path, which we're not there yet, but it's... Well, I think I think one of the things you spoke about, you don't want the reaction to be... An overreaction is is protecting the economy. It's it's very important. You know, if we don't protect the economy, if we don't keep things moving, then you know the economic situation could be much, much, much worse. Yeah, I mean, this is the horrible choice that's put in front of politicians. In that they feel that they have to be seen to be trying to protect the health of the the, the general public, but in doing so, they crash the economy. Yeah, that is a that is a nasty. It's a Hobson's choice, if, if ever there was one. Um, and it's one that there are. You know, if you're a politician, it's difficult to see how you win out of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, for private investors, I, I feel. It, I mean, it doesn't feel like a great time to be saying how do you win out of this, you know, as, a, as an investor. But you know, that's the game that we're in. So you know, there there is a lot of talk at the moment of buying the dip. Buying the dip has worked. Has worked for the last. 10 years. Very different circumstances to the end of a massive bull run. Because the issue now is not 
interest rates it's profits this is this is this is to me the big difference we're not talking about you know interest rates going up or central banks taking preemptive action to stave off a recession and cutting interest rates and printing money which keeps everybody happy this is a real threat to profitability and that's what makes this different yeah it's it's i mean it's, it's scary stuff it's very scary it's, it's a uh, conversation we'd rather not have yeah i mean i've i've seen a few sell offs so have i yeah. bomb crash credit crunch SARS didn't really even notice that, to be honest. Well, this, that came at the end of the dot-com crash. Yes, SARS, SARS coincided with a market bottom in sort of March 2003. I, I've seen this stat banded about quite a bit. Oh, look, look what happened after SARS. Markets, market soared. Look what happened after swine flu in 2009. Market soared. Yeah, but but ma- where were markets in 2003 and 2009? And this is, a, this is a, to me, a very good point that you just made, is, is that you look at it in the context of the market, and in 2003-2009, the base level of the market, the value of the market, was a lot lower than, than it, it was now. Not in the UK. I mean, obviously, well, yeah, it was in the UK. I mean, the UK has not done particularly well in price terms, but it's certainly in total return terms, it's done okay. But you are you are coming, particularly like an American stock market, and we know that America leads what happens in the rest of the stock markets in the world. You know, you're... You know, a week ago, we just over a week ago, we were at an all-time high. Yeah, and um, it hit an all-time high one day, and it's you know, tanked three percent. You know, and, I mean, it's and in two thousand and three and two thousand and nine, you actually had quite significant interest rates. Maybe not in two thousand and nine. I think two thousand and nine is that they'd been may have been cut, into that QE cycle. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in two thousand and three. I mean, I can't remember, but I know, I know, in two thousand and one, they were after the dot com boom, they were cut. Fairly low. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember 2003 interest rates not being. They weren't like maybe I'm talking. Today. No, no, no. I think I think you're right because that's when I I bought a house not long before that. So we certainly weren't where we are today. They were kind of normal interest rates. Yeah, so I think you so could stick money in a bank account and it would still outpace inflation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so things are different. Things are different here. Here. You mentioned the US uh, because in your report you suggest that this is this is something you're particularly concerned about. I guess that's because it's so much more expensive than than its history than than, than other markets. Uh, we've seen profit warnings from Apple and Microsoft today. Yeah, and you've seen you know you've seen companies like Visa and Mastercard, you know, should have written about in the magazine this week. Good businesses, superb businesses, just <laughs> absolutely whacked. Um, and I guess that's well. They depend on the transactions. If transactions don't happen, then I'm not. I I just I just think short term. There's a short term issue here where there are some wonderful businesses in America. I, I still remain a massive fan of the of take price aside, which I know you can't as an investor. But if you look at you know look at the menu that you're being offered in terms of companies, America. Uh, for me, most investors should should be looking at American shares because there are some absolutely wonderful, wonderful businesses there. Mm. Um, I think what we're seeing short term is that what we've seen over the last few years is perhaps share prices of these wonderful businesses just get slightly, you know, a little bit ahead, maybe a bit ahead of what those businesses are 
really warrant in terms of their you know their, their levels of profit and their levels of future growth. Um, you know, we've seen a huge concentration of performance in the S and P five hundred amongst a few stellar names, um, which has pushed pushed the valuations a lot higher on those shares. Now they're all tech as well, all tech. Yeah, or, or, or payment tech. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess the idea, but there has been this idea that you know because they're tech, they're kind of somehow insulated from the real world. Well, they're not. I mean, uh, look at Visa and Mastercard. I mean, two fantastic businesses, but if people stop spending, the volume of transactions going through their network will go down. Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, even tech, Amazon. If people stop spending, yeah. You know, and people have. I, I read a piece on Bloomberg suggesting that some of their, their sort of marketplace advertisers were spending less money. Yeah, uh, we've seen from to, to, uh, WPP today advertisers spending less money. So it it fills us through, and quite quickly it seems. And this is and this you know we come back to this this theme again. You've got situation. I think you know coming back to your initial point on on America, and uh, it's essentially the valuations of American shares and certain parts of the American stock market painted a very rosy picture. And I think the key bottom line on all this is that they're not priced for disappointment, even mm. if it might be a temporary bump in the road. And I, and I go back and, I, you know, I'll repeat myself here, is that my gut feeling on this is that this event, however long it lasts, will have an impact on how investors think about shares, think about the price that's attached to shares and how businesses don't always go up in a straight line. You could argue, and it seems sort of almost sort of distasteful to do so, but that's a good thing. I think it is a good thing. Um, I think, I think the the questions it raises and and the questions that are going to be asked of investors about their risk appetites is a good thing, and. You know, long term. I mean, obviously, the long term doesn't stay relevant for us forever. But the, these are the kind of things that are part and parcel of investing. I mean, it, do, it just seems to me that you know we've had this uh, somewhat something of a break from fundamentals, something of a break from reality uh, over the last few years, and and to get that fundamental approach back would, would seem to me to be a good thing. Where analysis matters, where where the work you put into understanding a company's how good it really is, and then can buy it at a at a valuation that reflects that is a good thing. Yeah, I think so. Wow, gloomy stuff though. I mean, you know, it is. I mean, it's not I, something that you feel great about today because it might be a few years before you can really put it into practice. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, hopefully, but... you know, it won't be too long before maybe we look, look back on this conversation and hopefully say that maybe we were a bit too pessimistic. I think everyone's quite pessimistic. The market has not done something. I mean, it's a 10% correction now, pretty much. Not a bear market. You know, in, in a week's time, the the virus threat may have passed and, and everyone's off to the races again. But would that be a good thing either? It, <laughs> I'm not mean, sure that will happen this time. No. Um, no. I think, you know, the, the, again, it's a it's a reality check. Mm. And it's, you know, long term, this is a good thing. But it feels like we've had reality checks. I mean, not quite as severe as this, but it's not. It's not like being a problem that's hidden. The one that we're talking about here. No, I mean, you and I and 
I'm sure you've had conversations with lots of people and, and you know, in, in many ways, the last 10, 11, 12 years have not really been normal times when it comes to investing. We, we, it almost feels like you've been part of, well, we are part of some kind of experiment. Where, yeah. Um, well, we are. It's a monetary policy. Yeah, it's, a mon- it's an experiment with money and the price of money. And what it does to asset prices. And we've seen the results. Um, yeah, it looks great, great for a while. Yeah. All uh, good things come to an end. Temporarily. We'll see. I don't I, I have to. I have to put my, you know, put my hands in the air and say, I don't know. No, we don't. We don't. But I think these are fair observations and, and they're definitely food for thought, especially the observations around risk appetites. Around diversification, uh, I, you know, I think every investor should be thinking about that all the time. They should be, and they should also, they should also, just focus on, focus on the businesses that they own. Yeah, um, you know, we're not we're not looking at, you know, bingo numbers here, um, playing some sort of fantasy game of things on a computer screen. These are. This is real. These are real things. Real companies, real real world activity that you can you can look at and get and understand. Um, yeah, and there are you know the outlook, the long term outlook. Um, hopefully, for many many good businesses, is still good. Yeah, I don't see why not. But why not. again, this is this is, but this is a bump in the road, and uh, yeah, the other thing as well is you know bumps in the road can throw up opportunities as well. Maybe well, it, not maybe not now as we're speaking, but you know Phoenix from the Flames and all that kind yeah, of Yeah, but thing. I mean I, I it's the point I make in my editorial. I mean and, and Chris Dillo makes in his uh in his economics column this week that you know people look in the in the mirror and go, Oh, you know, that's uh look what happened then. It's it's yeah. We 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 can expect a big bounce. But as as Chris puts it, you know, you look in the mirror. You don't look in the mirror in the rear view mirror when you're driving a car. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And <laughs> And you know psychology is is so important. You know your mindset, how how you, you know you're never going to call the top. You're never going to call the bottom of of markets. Um, but you, in, in lots of ways, nothing nothing's really as far as good investing is concerned. Nothing really has changed in terms of the process that you should go through to. Identify opportunities and manage that. Manage your your existing portfolio. But I guess our point is that not enough people have gone through that process as rigorously as they should, and are not actually assessing the risk in their portfolios as rigorously as they should. I think that's true. But I would also add to that that I think lots of people have and have come to the conclusion that there is no alternative but just to keep on hanging on. I think we did a. I think we did a podcast on that very subject, didn't we? Can't remember. Calling Tina. Calling Tina, mate. Calling yeah, Tina. I, I don't remember, but now I do. Yeah. There is no alternative. That's true. There probably still isn't. But who knows what what uh, the uh, central banks will do next? Who knows? Let's not even. Let's not even. Let's not even go there. Should we? Uh, I mean, we we like to finish on a positive note. <laughs> Podcasts. Uh, it's hard to find many this week when uh, there is a sea of red on the markets. But uh, should we talk about how does joinery? Yeah, this is one of your favourite companies, isn't it? Only because I like the kitchen. I can't. <laughs> Uh, Apart we, from the cooker hoods, I don't like it. I don't like their own. Uh, you don't like the Lamona stuff, do you? Not really, no. But then they sell the boss stuff, so we bought that instead. Yeah, but the cooker hood did what we wanted it to do, sort of. 
Yeah, Howden's is, I like this business as well. It's come out with some very decent, decent results today. Just to put that into perspective, Tops Tiles, which is also in the home improvement market, in pretty much the same bit of the market, has had an absolute shocker. It has. So this perhaps speaks to the to how well Howden's is run. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Howden's in the last recession, it's one of the best performing businesses in the last recession. You would think, you would have thought that in a recession, that something that sells kitchens, which aren't, you know, not an insignificant outlay for, for households, would have really come a cropper in the last recession. And Howden's, Howden's didn't. Had a bit of a, had a bit of a wobble, but I was actually just before we came here, because I'm, I'm writing something up for my report next week about Howden's, is, you know, I was looking at the long-term performance of this business. It's had 10 years. I think it's depot, you know, the depot business, the Howden depot is where you go and see your kitchens and buy them. Um, had 10 years of, of like-for-like sales growth. And, you know, Howden's definition of like-for-like sales is more, more conservative than, than most, uh, most businesses. And it's just been tremendous, the, the, the growth that they've got out of the existing depots. They've added new depots. You know, there's so much to like about this business in terms of the way it's run, the freedom that they give their depot managers, and they seem very, very good at giving their customers, which are kitchen fitters, usually sole traders. It's kind of funny arrangement the way they sell, though, because, I mean, obviously, you know, when we bought our kitchen, our installer was the customer of Howden's, but mm. they looked after us as the kind of end end customer yeah, uh, they made it a really good experience. We went in and did all the planning. We went in and you know you just order it through, through the fitter. But it's a great experience for for the, even the people who are not buying. And I guess I don't know they did, the service just seemed uh, outstanding. And you know in terms of how how quickly they could deliver, how how responsive they were if something wasn't quite right. It, was, it was really good. They're really they what they do is they seem really on top of of running their business. I mean, part of that comes from the fact that they make. They make a lot of the. I think they make a lot of the units themselves. They've got their own factory, so they sort of the the casks that form your kitchen. Howden's make make them. Mm. Um, they obviously sell a lot of. They've got their own own label, which you've given a glowing endorsement of. Well, I, I haven't used them. Just didn't like the look of them. <laughs> but but, um, but they also run their depots. You know, there's you know continuing focus on efficiency and how their depots are seen by their customers. And there's a big big sort of rejigging of the depot format at the moment, which means that they can show more kitchen displays in their depots and they can use the space better, which is not only better visually and from an experience point of view to the customer, but actually the efficiency of the depot, the profit of the depot. Having said that, there are, are, are little things that I think always worth keeping an eye on with, with Howden's. And bad debt, bad debt. It's a credit business, right? This is a credit business. It 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 brings customers in by you know kitchen fitters by offering them credit, and it's it's interesting that the the number of a customer accounts they have. And one, I, I I sort of wrote about this what two years ago, eighteen months ago. I did did a piece in the Investors Chronicle about Howden's, and I. I looked at the level of of bad debt and overdue debt, and that's not in the release today. But it's not not been a problem yet. But what I have noticed is that there's been no growth in the customer account numbers, probably for the last two years now. 
So they're about 470,000. Now, you can look at that two ways. You can think, well, is that a bad thing because they're not getting more customers? Um, Or is it a good thing because it shows that there's credit control here? There's not reckless over-expansion by offering credit to lower-quality customers. And also, the existing customers seem to be spending more. I was going to say... Surely the best indicator of quality control, uh, quality control, credit control, is whether the bad debt figures rising. Yeah, and we're not we're not seeing that. So, so that that might you will see that in you know if things get really rough. You'll you will see that. But, yeah, but um, I think what's what's good here is that they're getting the existing customers to spend more with them, and I think if they're not out there really, really pushing at sort of unsustainable or low-quality growth, it means that their customer acquisition costs, which is, a, which is an expense, yep. goes down. I, I, and, and, you know, there's, a lots, of, you know, there's lots of good things. You know, they, ha- they have tremendous cash flow. And they can fund pretty much their, their day-to-day activities from their own cash generation. And there's a lot of investment going into refurbishing the depot network, opening up new ones, big investment in IT now, the, the Howdens.com web, web, uh, website. Um, they're very, very much pushing, pushing the business down there, which is like, you know, they have to. Uh, but again, it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. And they've got $260 million of uh, of cash on the balance sheet, net cash. Yeah. I think you always have to be a bit careful with interpreting cash balances because I think they use they use that cash to finance their their working capital along with their trading trading cash flow. It's not exactly a, it's not exactly a business that couldn't get some bank borrowing if it actually wanted it. Yeah, but I like the fact that it hasn't. I think I'm a bit old fashioned in that way and I quite like to see so you see clean clean balance sheets like like this. Um but they they're buying back shares. Um I think they've and they have been buying back shares for the last few years and they've got 25 million of their existing buyback program from 2019 still to do and they've come out and announced um another 85 million buyback to be done over the next couple of years and the dividend's been up up 12% sorry yeah up 12% you know again as we've discussed very few businesses out there are bulletproof um, Howden's is and remains a great example of a business that is extremely well managed. Horrible share price, though. Horrible share price. But then again, who doesn't have a horrible share price at the moment? Actually, there's quite a few share prices in the magazine this week that are looking quite nice. I mean, Taylor Wimpy's share price flying. Decent results there. Yeah, I read them a different way, Taylor Wimpy's. Market, market, read them different days to you then. Uh, a lot of the, of the REITs seem to be holding firm. A lot of value stuff, a lot of recovery income. stuff is doing okay. You know, you look at income, I'm sure, you know, you look at utilities, people are, mm. you know, stocks like SSE, water companies, I'm sure they're, they're going to hold up quite well if the market continues the way the way it is. Absolutely. Even it's kind of like Serco, you know, that share price graph is nice over the last year. Recovery, recovery. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are, Pockets of the market that you can see have attractions. Yeah, well, that's for another time. That's for another time. What's, what, what is your uh, your concluding view on Howden's? Incidentally, are we uh, are we buying at this price? Are we buying the dip? I'm not sure about that. 
I think keeping an eye. I think if I, if I owned it, I wouldn't sell it unless unless I think the end of the world the end of the world is coming. Is it not in the quality UK quality? It is. Portfolio? It is, and um, you know, as, as I said, there's uh, there's a lot to like about a business like this. You know, when they, when they deliver pretty decent results and you can see that the cash flow is there and you know they're up against very tough comparatives and to keep on doing that in markets which aren't easy and i think the current trading is 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 okay it's not you know again it's very hard to keep on growing on on something that's been growing for 10 years but it looks all right they're keeping an eye on their stocks they they do source stock from china and they 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 seem to be on top of that at the moment in terms of making sure that they're well stocked up. Like handles, hinges. <laughs> Everything. Everything? <laughs> the cabinet's made in the UK. No, I mean I mean I'm sort of being you know, most businesses have got have got Chinese risk here. That's for another time too. I know we wanted you wanted to talk about reshoring, but we'll yeah. come back to that because I think that's too big a topic to, to chuck in at the end of uh Yeah, it's a good well, it's topic. What's been quite quite sort of, you know, that's a, that's a heavy juicy discussion there around what is a, a very serious moment in uh in recent market history, it's very difficult, very difficult to uh, to really feel that you know what what's going on. Really, indeed, indeed. Anyway, thanks, Phil. Uh, we'll no doubt have a completely different story next week. <laughs> uh, that's how fast this particular story is moving. It's 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 almost impossible to keep up with. I was looking yesterday. U.S. markets opened up, got home down. I mean, it's 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 whipsawing, and I don't like whipsawing markets. Suggests to me, no one knows what's going on. Um, okay, let me just talk you through what we've got in the magazine. Uh, lots and lots of results. We're we're heading uh, heavily into results season now. Next week's going to be even more uh, jam packed with the results. Uh, usual tips and updates. Really interesting tip update. A company called Tristel, which is uh, which is rubbing its hands with glee. Feel is uh, making the signal for it's it's basically in the sweet spot of the coronavirus. It does sort of uh, decontamination protection, that sort of stuff. And it shares about 500% since we tipped them. That's nice, although that was five years ago. What have we got uh, in the personal finance and fund section? Quite interesting piece there on uh, how fund managers do their research. No doubt they will talk about that on their podcast tomorrow. Lots in the news section, uh, including uh, an, a view of the, another view of the coronavirus, just keeping, keeping you informed what's going on there. Really interesting news feature uh, looking at Pearson and Relex, which are a very, two very different stories, both held by Nick Train, the fund manager. One of them is done very well. One of them is an absolute disaster zone. And, and we try to put some some sort of clarity around that. Nick Train has hung on to Pearson for dear life and we could never understand why. And we've posed that question here. Uh, and in terms of features, we're looking at uh, scams this week. So not a scam necessarily, but P2P property uh, and whether you should be uh, involved in that. Offers very nice yields, often a danger sign. And we're looking at, uh, at scams more generally and a lot of the investment scams that, uh, that are proliferating in this internet age. Some of them uh, advertised uh, very prominently on Google, which is a, a big bugbear of a guy called Mark Taylor. Who's, uh, who, who's a really, really uh, good activist for this sort of thing. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Phil. I'm a bit frazzled, John. You're frazzled. You're depressed now. Yeah. I'm sorry, we, we, we couldn't be more positive today. It's a tricky market. But anyway, hopefully we can help you out. Read the Alpha Report, read the magazine. Yeah, lots of useful information in there. And uh, yeah, try not to get caught by scammers. Beat the scammers. How investment scams are proliferating and uh, how you can avoid being caught out by them and win in the fight against financial crime. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents. Thank you.